Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 6th of November 2023 and this is episode 322. On today's podcast, I talk to author and historian Dr Derek Clayton about his book To Do the Work of Men that looks at the operational history of the 21st Division during the Great War. This book is published by Helion. Derek spoke to me over the interweb from his home in England. Derek, welcome back to the podcast. Um, could you share with us your personal journey at, that has made you into First Division and that made uh, and that motive book uh, on their experience during war? Well, we have to go back to the late 80s here. I was given a photograph of my great-uncle in his World War I uniform by his sister, my great-aunt, and she informed me that he'd been with the 9th Battalion of the King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry. Uh, now, this aroused my interest as my father had been in the Coilies in World War II. So I tried to trace his service records through the Ministry of Defence, as you had to do in those days, only to be informed that his records had been destroyed by the Luftwaffe in the Second World War. So I went off to the Public Record Office, scoured through the Ninth Coily War Diary, luckily very extensive war diary, and I actually found his name in a 1918 entry. So this confirmed the fact that he was in this battalion. Um, quite a number of visits later, I'd accumulated a lot of handwritten notes and thought, well, what am I going to do with them now? So I wrote a battalion history, and that was published in 2004. Now, John Lee, the biographer of General Hamilton, kindly reviewed the book positively. And when I met him at the University of Birmingham at a seminar, he commented that I should have written a history of the 21st Division, Ninth Coily being part of that formation. Uh, I, I smiled at him and then totally forgot about it. About 10 years later, Helion Publishing were about to publish my book on the Battle of the Sambre, and they asked me if I would write a divisional history for them. Now, they had a list of divisions that hadn't had a divisional history written, and 21st Division was on that list. So, as I knew its basic history already, of course, I said yes to that. You've told us why you focused on this particular and what unique contributions did they make apart from the other seven divisions that served on the Western Front? Well, on a personal level, there is that family connection, of course, and it was therefore a question now of widening research that I'd already done. And the, the fact that the 21st Division had been a very busy formation, there'd be plenty to write about. It spent its entire war on the Western Front, so that's from September 1915, right through to their last action on the 7th of November 1918. And it was involved in practically all of the major engagements between those dates, both offensive and defensive. Um, I'm not sure that any of their attributes can be described as unique, but the 21st Division's experience sort of mirrors that of the BEF through the war, the failures, the successes, the learning process, sometimes the hard slog luck, both good and bad. I mean, 21st Division uh, doesn't get into anyone's list of elite divisions, um, but they were always there. Professor Peter Simpkins describes them as one of the most resilient divisions 
in the new army, whatever setbacks they experienced, they bounced back. Um, they made 10 successful attacks on the Somme in 1916. I'm not sure how many divisions you could say that of. And that included uh, the attack on the first day. It says a lot about their character and their qualities when you think that only a few months before they'd had a pretty bad time at the Battle of Luz. And it had, from May 1916 right through to the end of the war, one of the best divisional commanders of that war, and that was David Campbell. Um, they fought an epic defence of the village of Epervy. That's not me saying that, that's Peter Simpkins again, on the 21st of March 1918. They fought one of the best brigade night attacks of the war in August 1918 along the banks of the Ancre. And they also had three of the best brigade commanders on the Western Front in 1918. They had George Gator, Andrew McCulloch and Hanway Cumming. So they were, as I say, a very, very busy division. And we, you get everything from abject failure to resounding success. I wonder whether we could just step back and, and look at what um, sorts of units make up their uh, constitution. Where were they drawn? What type of units did they have? Did they have a mixture of regular new army and TF units or territorial force units? They start off as an entirely new army unit. Um, their battalions were mainly from the north. They were from Yorkshire. They were from um, Northumberland area. There was one exception for which I've never found a reason. They, they did have the, uh, the 8th Somerset Light Infantry in there. How they crept in, I don't know. But uh, other than that, they were, they were a northern battalion. The, the makeup of the division did change as we went through the war. Um, so after Luce, uh, regular battalions were brought in, if you like, to, to, to stiffen the division. And one particular brigade was, was moved out and the 110th Brigade came in in the summer of 1916, which was all the, the Leicestershire Battalion. So there was a little bit of alteration, but basically they, they remained um, a new army division with battalions mainly from the north of England. Now, the division has a tumultuous start, being thrown into action on the second day of the Battle of Luz in 1915 with no previous battle experience. Could you tell us about this engagement and then how this initial setback shaped the division's subsequent engagement unless uh, they learned from this early experience? Indeed. As you say, they were thrown into the battle on the second day. They'd had no experience of trench warfare. In fact, they'd only been in France for, for two weeks. Um, it's a strange thing to contemplate, but if the, the Battle of Luz had taken place on the date that it was originally planned, the division would still have been in England at the time. As it happens, they were given an impossible task. It was an attack on the second German line. Now, this was still intact. The artillery barrage on the first day hadn't touched it, and it actually had been reinforced overnight. The Germans had brought about 20 battalions forward. Um, two brigades were then transferred to other formations almost immediately, one to defend the woods to the north of Hill 70, and another one to support uh, a planned attack on Hill 70. Now, the woods were given up eventually after a very stubborn defence that brought the German counterattack to a halt. The one remaining brigade, the 64th Brigade, was very badly handled. It was thrown in piecemeal. Um, there were no maps available. I think out of the entire 21st Division staff, one staff officer was able to look at a map the day before they went into the battle. And that was it. Not surprisingly, some of the advancing troops lost direction and they were badly mauled by German machine gun fire and, and, and forced to withdraw. The whole thing was a mess. It was Command and control was almost non-existent. 
the planned attack, which was supposed to take place with three brigades, was by then, of course, down to one brigade, the other two having been detached to other formations. And not surprisingly, uh, the story came out that things had gone very, very badly for both 21st Division and actually 24th Division, who'd attacked to the north um, on the same day against the same defences, and again had come off rather badly. Um, I think I might sum up what the, the men thought by a comment that was made to General Haking, who was commanding officer of 11th Corps. But when he finally made it to the battlefield that evening, he was talking to the men who were coming back. And apparently one of them said to him, we didn't know what it was like. We will do better next time. Well, the lessons to be learned, as I said, were those concerning command and control. Um, almost immediately, the divisional commander, Forestier Walker, was removed. Um, he was replaced by Claude Jacob, who was then quite quickly replaced by David Campbell. A very, very positive move there. They had changes imposed upon them as well. One battalion in each brigade was replaced by a more experienced unit. In fact, a, a, a unit of regular soldiers. They were then, thankfully, they were given the introduction to trench warfare that they should have had before loose. They spent the winter in trenches, initially in Plugstedt Wood, and then near the town of Armentières, learning the basics of trench warfare through simply experiencing them. They they understood what it was like after that to be under shell fire. They'd organised raids on German trenches, and by the spring, they were a reasonably well-experienced battalion. So they were, in fact, of course, and you can, you can read this in the diary and you can see it in letters and things, the men are looking forward now to actually proving themselves when they get to their next test, shall we say. So throughout the war, the 21st Division is involved in numerous major engagements such as the Somme and the Ypres, and you've touched on this um, in, in, in your previous comments. Could you give us an, uh, an idea of one or two sort of incidents, you know, that, that prove that, you know, this desire to prove themselves? Certainly. And maybe maybe one action where they didn't perform as well as, as they, they, they could, could have done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, no problem. Um, the next major engagement, as it happened after the Battle of Luce, was the, the Battle of the Somme. Now, they were trusted, if you, want, if you put it that way, to actually go into attack in the front line on the first day, which might suggest, I suppose, that any stigma attached to them after Luce had been removed by this point. They were attacking eastwards across the Freecourt Spur to the north of, of that village. Um, there's an interesting little story about um, one of the commanding battalion commanding officers, that's Lieutenant Colonel Lynch of the 9th King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry. The night before the attack, all the officers gathered in a dugout to have a, a final drink together. And in the absence of the second in command, a certain Captain Haswell was asked to give a toast to the CO, and he refused. He said, I don't wish him well, so I'm not going to do it. He was more or less forced into doing it, so he sort of skirted around it and made made the toast to the battalion rather than to the CO. Um, now, the CO may have been unpopular, but he was a very, very good planner. Um, they they dug a Russian sap to shorten the distance between the trench lines. They'd been told to keep up with the barrage as much as possible and to move on to the German front line as soon as possible. So these were quite forward-looking tactics at that particular time, and that spread across the entire entirety of the 21st Division line. Having said that, the battalions in the first wave did lose most of their officers in no man's land, but they gained their objectives on that first day. There's a, a trench called Crucifix Trench, which is to the east of the main road running north 
from Fricourt. They held it, and this allowed Fricourt to be surrounded and cut off and captured the following day. The plan had to be had done had be to capture the village on the first day, but they had to take it on the second. It had been quite an expensive victory, if I can put it that way. Um, the division lost 98 officers and 896 men killed, including actually both Colonel Lynch and Captain Haswell. Total casualties were 5,800. Now, of course, whether you can call that a success is up for debate. But if you look at it purely tactically, and then it, then it was. As I said earlier, the 110th Brigade came into the division in the middle of July. And a week later, on the 14th, an even more successful attack took place. This was the division's attack on the Bazantin Ridge, a very successful pre-dawn assault. It was a surprise attack, no preliminary bombardment this time, hurricane bombardment at zero, and an effective early version of a creeping barrage. The woods were captured and held for just under 1,900 casualties. One battle which didn't go particularly well during the Somme was the second day of the Battle of Flair-Corselette, where they were trying to attack and take the village of Gurdecourt. Um, if you stand just to the north of Flair and you look down the valley northwards, there is a ridge to your right. You can't actually see Gurdecourt, but it's over the ridge to the right. So they were attacking up this ridge. And the, the first two attempts there went badly. They didn't succeed. Um, they were hastily planned. They didn't have the right support. The artillery barrage wasn't particularly good. And they were forced back on the first two attempts. They did make it on the third, but it wasn't one of their one of their best days. If we move to 1917, we have a similar situation on the first day of the Battle of Arras. 21st Division were on the extreme right, forming a defensive flank. That was their job for that day. They, to do that, they had to capture a section of the Hindenburg Line. Again, they had an artillery barrage that wasn't very effective. The men managed to get through the first line of barbed wire, but not the second, and they were eventually forced back out. There was a posthumous VC on that occasion for Private Horace Waller on the 10th of April for holding back a German counterattack. But after that, further attacks uh, aiming across the Hindenburg Line and sometimes actually along the Hindenburg Line, they proved hard-fought stalemates. There was there was no real breakthrough. The, the um, objectives on the whole were not gained. One of the most spectacular um, attacks would be a uh, a brigade attack, single brigade, near Tiepfal on the southern bank of the Ankara. This was on the night of the 23rd, 24th of August, 1918. They, their job was to move quickly and capture Hill 135. Uh, now, for anybody who knows the, the area, that is just to the north of what is now the Ardenac Cemetery on that, on that ridge to the south of Miramont. It was an attack across rolling countryside. Intermediate objectives coincided with valleys running across the line of advance. Now, it was a, it was a quarter past 11 start, and orders hadn't been given for the attack until late that afternoon. So Campbell did his best. He tried, and orders were sent down to McCulloch. All he could do was have a, a verbal conversation, a verbal conference, if you like, with his commanders and said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go and do it now. As it happens, it went very, very well. Two battalions were on Hill 135 by half past four that morning. They managed to hold out against a German counterattack, a determined attack from three different directions because they went in unsupported on either flank. They held it well into the morning, uh, despite actually losing 64th Brigade's commander, Andrew McCulloch. He was wounded. As it happens, evidence 
would seem to point to the fact that he was shot by one of his own men. He was, in the words of another of his officers, um, Captain Spicer, he was gallivanting about in front looking for prisoners. And not surprisingly, when he came back towards our lines, one of our men shot him. But anyway, the Germans actually withdrew around midday. Uh, so it was a, it was a three-mile advance in the dark, no flank support, only 109 casualties. And in uh, his book on 1918, Peter Simpkins regards this as one of the best brigade actions of the war. I suppose there's, there's one more very successful attack, which was the latter part of the Battle of the Cell, 23rd to 24th of October 1918. A very uh, wide attack. It involved 4th, 3rd and 5th armies. A series of five objectives over a distance of 9,500 yards. Three villages to capture. Brigades leapfrogged each other through the 23rd into the evening, rested through that night and continued the following morning. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Greenwood, commanding officer of the 9th King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry, heard himself, learned himself the division's last VC of the war. He personally took out three German machine gun positions that were threatening to hold up the advance. So again, another example of good, shall we say, good tactics, good operational uh, tempo. Their last operation was uh, a small-scale one. It was on the 7th of November 1918. It was an attack on a village to the east of the forest of Mormal, called Limon Fontaine. For some reason, I don't know why, the Germans decided rather than retreat at this point, they were gonna they were gonna hang on. And it took two attempts, but by the evening of the 7th of November, 21st Division had captured Limon Fontaine, its twin uh, village of Ecleb, and had moved on to positions that they held until the armistice. The it's interesting to note actually that through the hundred days, although it was mostly successful, the casualties were consistently high. For example, August, we're talking 2,900. September, 2,500. October, 2,600. And even in the first few days of November, another 400. That's 8,500 casualties in the 100 days. So you've talked about the division in attack. How did it perform in defence? I'm partly thinking about some of the immense problems they faced during the German spring offensive of March and April 1918. How did they adapt and respond to these offences? And did these actions actually shape their offensive capabilities in the 100 days that you've already uh, touched on? Well, we start on that one with the, the 21st of March 1918, the, the first day of the Kaiserschlacht, the Kaiser's Battle, Operation Michael. And it was the defence of the village of Epi that sticks out here. This is this is thanks to clever planning by Major General Campbell. He had uh, 110th Brigade, mainly in the village itself. There were other brigades to the north and south of it. But at the first sign of trouble, and they practised this many, many times in the, in the weeks coming up to the 21st, at the first sign of trouble, the men fell back into what Campbell called battle stations, which were redoubts in and around the village, which left the German preliminary artillery barrage to fall mainly on empty trenches. And on that first day, despite some minor German incursions to the north and south, which were eventually beaten back, they held their line for the rest of that day, which was a rare event on the 21st of March. They were only forced back the day after on the 22nd because the formations on either flank had crumbled and been forced back. And indeed, the, the Leicestershire Regiment men were loath to move. They were ordered to, to get out of there on the 22nd, and they, they didn't want to go. Having held on 
all through that first day. They were quite happy to stay there and hold the Germans up a bit longer, but they had to move back. And what followed was was six days of step-by-step withdrawal, uh, going as far back as the town of Albert in the end, when they were finally relieved by Australian formations. And by that time, they'd suffered 5,000 casualties. That sounds a lot, but if I add that over 2,000 of those were taken prisoner, become prisoners of war. Still heavy enough. Though. Following that, they were sent to Second Army area near Ypres to recover, to reconstitute the battalion, to take in replacements. And they got there just in time to face the German attack on Camel on the 25th of April, part of the Georgette offensive. Now, the Germans took Mount Camel itself from the French garrison, which was on the right wing. Um, units of the 21st Division were again in the front line near a little wood called Onrate Wood. This was actually uh, 62nd Brigade. And they were pushed back through that wood, suffering very, very heavy casualties in that initial fight for the forward positions. But, and it has to be said, the German, um, the Germans didn't push on too enthusiastically, shall we say, after the, after the first few hours of the battle. But the 21st Division, and particularly 64th Brigade, managed to hold that attack up. There was a, there's a very small hill there called Hill 44. And if you stand on that, you've got a, a reasonable view over the, the approaches. And 64th Brigade decided they were going to make a stand there and actually brought the German advance to a halt. And it, it didn't get any further. In fact, there was, a again, an abortive effect attempt at an attack the following, at a counterattack the following morning. But the, the job had been done, basically. The Germans had been brought to a halt. But again, heavy casualties ensued. So they were moved out again for a rest, this time to the French sector way down south on the Chemin des Dames Ridge. Well, in fact, just to the just to the east of it. And that was just in time to face the third major German offensive of the spring. That's the Blücher-York offensive across the Chemin des Dames Ridge and then southwards across the, the rivers. Again, it was repeated. It's a question of repeated withdrawals. Um, the French commander, Duchesne, had actually insisted on placing the majority of his troops in the front line at the end of May. And this was against the orders of Foch, by the way. The divisional command, the British divisional commanders, there were about three or four British divisions that had gone down there, all went to Duchesne to complain that this wasn't the way to do it. They wanted defence in depth, but Duchesne wouldn't move. He had the men in the front line. In fact, he had quite a few units to the east of a canal, which once the Germans started to attack, it was very difficult to get back across there. And many, many units were, were surrounded and cut off before they could get back. Again, it was it was a series of retreats due mainly actually, to being constantly outflanked on the left by the German advance southwards from the Chemin des Dames Ridge. And again, it was it was three, four, five days of man on the spot doing his best either to hold on or to actually retreat in some sort of order. This time, we're talking four and a half thousand casualties, but again, we're talking three 3,300 who were missing and captured. It's difficult to see any obvious lessons from that, working through to the 100 days. What is certain is that the battalions were basically down to almost company level after each of those attacks. And it took a while to reconstitute. In fact, at one point, um, it was questionable whether certain battalions would survive. They were going to be uh, reduced to cadre and sent back. In the end, they did rebuild the division. And as it turns out, quite quickly, quite quickly, um, so it was a case of the 
officers in charge, the men, the, the staff officers as well, who did an excellent job on integrating all the new uh, recruits, training them to be in a position to then go on and actually take part in those 100 days advances. Um, they were, by the, by, the, by the end of May, I, I possibly say the 21st Division was very good at, at fighting a gradual retreat. I'm not sure the same lessons apply to fighting an offensive operation. Maybe they do. No, I think I think it's really interesting that you know you've shown that the twenty first division has been through vast amounts of attacks, is being churned up, facing intense fighting, difficult conditions, and you know it's called Sir Arthur Conan Doyle of Sherlock Holmes fame calls it that hard bitten old scrapper, and I think you've touched on this already. But I'm interested in what makes this particular formation resilient. What gives it the reputation that it gets? Um, and it's one of these sort of mystical things about divisions that some divisions are regarded as elite and some are not regarded well at all. And but the 21st Division seems to have this sort of, you know, it's a it's a good workhorse. It does what it's required. It's reliable. But what makes it reliable? I think, I think it's always that sort of magic you're trying to pin down. You know, is it the learning curve? Is it officers? Is it leadership? I, I think it's all I think it's all three. Um, and it's also, uh, as I said, almost at the beginning of, of our conversation, there's a, there's a stubbornness in there. Um, the men themselves, after the Battle of Luce, in which they people have said it was a disaster. It wasn't. That, that's far too damning of the division's performance. Within the, even that battle, there was stubborn defence, which stopped the Germans getting to the village of Luce. There were numerous attacks which went forward, and again, with almost no chance of success, but still they were driven forward. Uh, that says a lot for the officers. It says a lot for the men. When they came back to the Somme, again, they wanted to they wanted to prove something. And I think that feeling went on all the way through the war. Those that were the original uh, men of that division had something to prove. And it, and it also um, paved the way, if you like, for them to be able to uh, recover from further setbacks. But you're right in saying that the... Uh, they had a good officer cadre. The I've mentioned the three excellent brigade commanders. The divisional commander himself, um, whoever writes about him, whoever speaks about him from from the records of those times, have positive things to say. He was he was originally a cavalryman. He was uh, he was wounded in 1914 by a German lance in a cavalry charge. But by 1918, forward looking, he was he was taking flights in aircraft, making reconnaissance flights on his own. But well. With the pilot, of course. So he was a forward-looking commander who, actually, incidentally, was uh, was never reluctant to go to his superiors and argue a point about something the division had been ordered to do. If he didn't see, if he didn't think it was possible, or he wanted to do it a different way, he was quite happy to go and tell them. And for the most part, actually, did get his own way in the end. So you've got excellent leadership at the top throughout the the three phases of the uh, German offensives in 1918. Again, you've got officers on the spot making decisions that would save the battalions time and time again. And I've never quite worked out how this did actually happen. But the officer casualties in those three um, German attacks were quite low. So the officers who went through all that were the same ones who took them forward largely into the attacks of the 100 days. So you had experience. You had people who were in the positions now of battalion commanders who maybe had started off commanding companies or even platoons, and they'd experienced everything that the Great War had to throw at them. So by, by 1918, they, they knew their job and, and did it well and did it properly. They were able to 
make decisions on their own in the midst of battle and to make the right decisions for, for most of the time. But even, as I said, when it, when it came to uh, setbacks, there was a stubbornness. You know, we, we'll, we'll do it right next time. And that, 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 that theme runs all the way through all the writings in the war diary and letters and things that I've seen. It's, it's a stubbornness. It's a determination to get the job done that sees them through. And my final question has two parts. Firstly, where can people get hold of your research? And secondly, are there any books or publications that you would recommend um, on the 21st Division if people were interested in knowing more about the formation? Mm-hmm. Well, my, my divisional history, uh, if all goes well, is being published this autumn by Helion Publishing. It's entitled To Do the Work of Men, which is a quotation from a Noel Hodgson poem. Um, there are other sources which you can look at. Um, books have been written about units and formations within 21st Division, although no divisional history has yet appeared. There's my own book on the 9th King's Own Yorkshire Infantry. There's a book entitled The King's Own Yorkshire Infantry in the Great War by R.C. Bond. That was written back in the 1920s. There's a very good history of the 110th Brigade. Those are the Leicesters, written by Matthew Richardson called The Tigers. And Nigel Atter has recently written about the 8th Lincolnshires at the Battle of Luce. They were the ones who were trying to defend the, the woods north of Hill 70 on that particular day. That's a very, very detailed account. Um, if you want a broader view, uh, there's Jonathan Both's Third Army in 1918, winning and losing on the Western Front. Uh, Hanway Cumming, one of the uh, brigade commanders, 110th Brigade, he wrote a memoir called uh, A Brigadier in France. Again, well worth looking into. Uh, Derek Hunt has written a biography of Lieutenant Colonel Harry Greenwood, VC, the commander of 9th Coilies. That's entitled Valour Beyond All Praise. A very interesting read. And there's an unpublished MPhil thesis at the University of Birmingham by K.L. Snowden, entitled British 21st Division on the Western Front, a case study in tactical evolution. That takes three or four specific incidents through the Great War. And as it says, it's a case study on the evolution of tactics. There's an excellent website. Um, It's called 21st Division 1914-18.org. That's been created by Andy Lonergan. It's been there quite a while now. Years of research and collecting material. If you want the order of battle, if you want biographies of important characters and so on, that's the place to go. Um, The definitive account is mine. Um, Some recent divisional histories have concentrated quite overtly on command, training, learning curve and tactical developments. Well, mine does have those elements, um, but I decided this time that I was going to concentrate on the results of these elements, how they affected what the division was able to do or not to do in the major actions that they fought. Derek, thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.